Value Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Daniel Hanna, who is in London right now. And Daniel is the Global Head of Sustainable Finance at Standard Chartered Bank. This conversation is going to be very important uh, as I piece together uh, the elements of impact investments, uh, financial institutions, uh, and the whole capital market that is evolving around impact investments. And the reason Daniel captured my attention uh, was an announcement that Standard Chartered Bank made last year that it was going to set aside $1 billion of its own resources, its own funds. I'm also interested to know how much of that money uh, is backstopped by government guarantee because uh, many other banks around the world uh, were announcing impact investment type um, objectives always with some form of government um, backing. Uh, the commitment that financial institutions take uh, in repurposing their own business uh, as well as funding and supporting uh, global and local initiatives is very important. Uh, and the steps that Stanchart has been taking uh, are transformational, not just for Stanchart, but for the financial services industry as, as a whole. So th- Daniel, thank you very much for joining me today. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, although I came across the fact that um, you know, Stanchart had made that commitment, uh, I noticed that Stanchart is not in any of the league tables, as it were, right? The bond issuance league table and so on at the moment. Uh, and I also noticed that many financial institutions around the world are falling over themselves to repurpose or to relabel a lot of the lending and the bonds that they've issued to be sustainable finance uh, in order to keep up with the trend. So tell me a little bit about at which point did you personally get involved and be appointed this very important position. Uh, the, your appointment itself uh, is an important um, milestone because it indicates the institution's commitment to sustainable finance um, and how how you and, and your institution uh, repurposed or uh, configured uh, this whole approach to impact investments uh, that you have right now. Well, thank you very much. I think a great question to start with. Stan Chart has effectively been doing what you might call sustainable finance for a very long time. Our our first ESG risk team um, was set up in 1997. Um, We were one of the original signatories to the Equator Principles, the best practice that the private sector sets for doing infrastructure. Um, We set environmental targets in the, I think it was 2002, 2003. um, And we actually issued our first impact report in terms of our financings in 2006. So we've been doing a lot of what gets aggregated with sustainable finance for, for quite some time. What was new with my appointment was just bringing that all together under, if you like, one umbrella and having a really core team that is going to drive it going forward. And um, I've been doing that now for, for two years. And, and one of the unique things about Standard Chartered in, in sort of the financial institution space is that we've combined, if you like, our risk team. So the, the team that analyzes the risk that our clients have in their environmental, social and governance issues um, with effectively the team that finances the opportunity to drive the shift to a low carbon future and to becoming more responsible. And I think that's very important because we see the risk and the opportunity as being absolutely part of exactly the same equation. So if you look at, for example, Asia, Asia faces probably the biggest risk from climate change in terms of the impact 
in terms of uh, rising sea levels and, and the greatest impact to its GDP and, and to its people um, from flooding and, and, and extreme events from weather, but at the same time has the biggest opportunity to leapfrog to low carbon uh, business models. And so we wanted to put that conversation in one place because I think you need to be um, to be credible, you need to be doing both that kind of risk analysis and also that opportunity financing. How much of your appointment um, in the last one year or so was uh, relabeling everything that you've been doing so that you know you can report better, you can be more visible? I mean, I think you've raised a really important point, and it's actually one that I think uh, the industry is not having an honest conversation around, which is that a lot of green finance, frankly, is relabeling in, in sort of uh, development finance speak. And I used to I spent um, five, six years running our public sector business, engaging with governments uh, and financing the multilaterals. It's not additional. It is not creating new financing, driving to, to really where it matters. Um, and so I think this obsession, for example, with green bond league tables and the like is completely misplaced. We need to be having a greater focus on actually driving impact to where it really matters. Um, and that, for me, is, is really in a large part into the emerging markets where there's this opportunity, but there's also this risk from climate change and, and financing the sustainable development goals and a big financing gap at the moment. So from Standard Charter's perspective, yes, there are certain things that we were doing already for a very long time. But there are some things that we've absolutely done for the first time. Um, to look at, say, product innovation. We did the world's first blue bond, a green bond, uh, like a green bond, but this one was driving towards oceans and creating a sustainable uh, ocean economy, uh, which we did with the Republic of Seychelles. Or our launch of deposits, which are linked to the sustainable development goals. The first bank to launch a um, deposit program where you can put liquidity with standard charters and that liquidity is ring-fenced to go to the SDGs. Or to take another example, the recent work that we've done with IIX in Singapore around a women's livelihood bond, creating capital that is driving uh, to underprivileged women in South Asia. So I think there's a lot of areas of innovation where we're really trying to think about how do you catalyze capital to where it's really needed, not just raising another bond, uh, which could have probably been done anywhere. So what, what do you have as measurements in, in your institution itself uh, that, that you're putting uh, as milestones that you need to achieve? First of all, we were the first bank to say that we were going to phase all our clients away from coal anywhere in the world, both in the developed markets and the emerging markets um, by 2030. And I think that's that signaled a really important, um, you know, we had a big debate about this, to be honest, in San Chile, because clearly a lot of economies and livelihoods depend on, on coal. And frankly, in our footprint, 1 billion people have no access to power at all, whether it's any kind of power. So, you know, we were very thoughtful around, okay, do we really want to do this? Well, we're in a climate emergency. And so I think it's really important that we took that step. But also, we want to work with our clients to transition them to alternatives, which is why we also at the same time made a commitment to fund $75 billion of clean technology and sustainable infrastructure in, with a focus on emerging markets. And for us, I think that's key. How do we help emerging countries uh, and Asia in particular transition over the next decade? to what I think will be a big opportunity as well, but one that is much more um, aligned to the fact that we've got such a big crisis in climate going on at the moment. So how much of your loan book needs to look uh, like uh, ESG? How much of your you know, goals of uh, you know, capital raising should look like that? The interesting thing about Stanchart is that you are an amazing uh, you know, sm small business bank 
around the world. Uh, you know, so you you are intimately involved in exactly the emerging market countries uh, that will benefit from impact and from ESG. So you know, like um, percentages of um, changes you need to see on your balance sheet. Yeah, and I think it's really important, as you say, that we have these sort of targets. Uh, but more importantly, I think transparency around where our financing is going. Um, and it really comes back to that point I was mentioning earlier around not just saying that something is green or sustainable for the sake of it, but actually making sure that it has a real impact in driving change, which is why we started publishing an annual impact report. We put one out a couple of months ago, and it actually quantifies the amount of financing that is directly linked to sustainable development goals. And you can see the framework of how we've worked that out. It shows that our financing over the last 12 months have saved, I think, 736,000 tons uh, of carbon. Um, and that, our, that $3.4 billion of financing that we've clearly identified and had assured um, is also uh, focused very much on the emerging markets. In fact, 91% of our financing that is sustainable finance goes to the emerging markets. 86% of that um, goes towards uh, low-income countries. But we've got a lot more work to do. This is just very much at the beginning. If you look at the amount of financing that we need to scale globally, you're looking at a gap at the moment of about $2.5 trillion a year to hit the sustainable development goals. Um, and then in terms of uh, financing climate as well on top of that, that's extra capital. So we've got to work very quickly, not just as a bank, but I think as an industry to see how we can drive capital to where it really matters. There are indications like uh, the Bank of America put out a report saying that funds that were invested in uh, in impact, um, uh, performed three percent more than uh, than S and P five hundred in the last five years. Morningstar said seventy seven percent of ESG funds, um, you know, last uh, longer than ten years, you know, as opposed to you know other funds. So, um, you know, is it a rewarding business? Do you do you have um, good news to say about you know that uh, impact is good for business? Yeah, I think it is. And I think particularly in, in Asia and, and wider in, in emerging markets as well. I think you mentioned that Morningstar report. It showed that um, ESG funds outperformed in one, three and five year categories. Um, but I think when you talk about reward, it's important to think about this in two, two parts, because actually reward comes from A, driving uh, sort of excess returns, but B, from avoiding risk issues and, and, and failures there. And I think what we've seen increasingly is the evidence that shows that ESG1 is correlated with a sustainable business that's capital accretive over a period of time or that shows excess returns. But two, really importantly, it helps avoid downside risks. The IFC put out some research that shows that ESG funds outperform in terms of a return on equity and on a return on assets. And part of that, frankly, is a company that runs good ESG is probably just a very well-run company. Um, but at the same time, we see a big opportunity here. We put out a piece of research last year called Opportunity 2030, and that showed that within 15 markets, most of them, in, as I think half of them were in Asia, and there is a $10 trillion investment opportunity over the next 10 years aligned to just three of the SDGs. So I think that's a big opportunity to go after. And then on the same time, if you think about what's happening on, on carbon prices, I think there is a growing consensus that you're hearing from many different places in the regulatory space that says, look, we need to start pricing carbon appropriately. And so if that carbon price starts moving up, then if you're not an ESG company or if you're not effectively moving to that low carbon uh, business model, you're likely to hit a negative hit. Um, and so I think ESG basically will, will see an outperformance, not just for sort of excess returns perspective, but also from an avoiding risk perspective.
So how much of what you're doing in uh, sustainability is going to start showing up in Stanchart's own balance sheet, uh, you know, quarterly reports uh, coming up? And I, I want to bear uh, in mind also that, you know, the BIS has been putting out, has put out this report on that, right? So a lot of that had to do with, uh, with, with the, uh, you know, getting out of coal um, as, a, as an important business model for all banks around the world. But beyond that, um, you know, what you are, we, what you're claiming to be doing, which is, you know, uh, being closer to the ground, um, you know, uh, being environmentally conscious and as well as socially responsible, uh, all that is good. But do you personally have responsibility uh, that has to show up in the balance sheet of the bank itself, um, you know, in the near future? Yeah, so we actually, we run a, if you like, a sustainable balance sheet. Uh, it's a virtual balance sheet that matches off our assets and liabilities within the bank. Precisely so that if we ever do, when we do our liquidity products, so liabilities or deposits, or when we raise our sustainability bond, we have to have that sort of ring fence pool of assets on the other side that's sustainable um, as well, just to make sure that, you know, that, that's pretty robust. And we're driving both of them at the same time. So, so absolutely, we've got a balance sheet, we've got a PNL. Um, in coming years, you will see the bank probably starting to move to report on that basis as well. We're not clearly there yet. But the focus of the institution is very much to make sustainable finance one of our big core pillars. We see a big opportunity and we think this is really important um, for our clients. And I think we're hearing a lot of demand from our clients across the whole bank, whether it's retail, whether it's um, high net worth individuals, corporates, institutions and governments for this kind of focus. Do you personally uh, wish that the BIS would uh, reward banks for being sustainably conscious uh, on its balance sheet? you know, the loans that you issue, the bonds, uh, and that it'll take off some of the capital requirement from that or reward banks for, for moving in that direction. Within sustainable finance, you've got a real alignment between what the banking sector wants to do with what regulators want to do and what investors want to do, which is drive more capital into these sort of areas. Um, and so I do think there needs to be a question around the sort of the capital treatment of some of this. And you've seen a little bit of this happen. So for example, in Europe, They've taken the decision to reduce the RWA for qualifying green projects um, that meet certain criteria. Um, and I think actually that's something that I would encourage, say, Asian regulators to be looking at very carefully as well, because there is clearly a big financing gap that needs to happen in order to see the big economic shift towards net zero, towards being much more um, sort of aligned to low carbon um, business models. And I think there is a big opportunity for, for Asia here in particular. Do you see regulation evolving eventually where it will reward banks and, um, you know, and bank capital adequacy requirements um, if they were more uh, attuned to impact? And therefore, it won't be the you know, highly developed safe countries that will be rewarded, but the countries which are transformational and using bank capital uh, well, if we're working towards getting a regulatory regime where because of impact, uh, the whole thinking in terms of uh, a, a well-run institution is one which is relevant, um, you know, to the society that it serves instead of being just safe and well-developed. I think from a capital adequacy ratio and from, a, if you like, a regulatory prudential regime, what the regulators are trying to ensure is that the bank is, is effectively safe. Um, and so here, I think, where you are going to see increasing focus and, and work from the regulators and, frankly, from, from banks as well, is to show that there is a correlation between, if you like, the risk that sits on a balance sheet and the ESG. And, and certainly, I certainly believe that, right? So whether that is in terms of the sort of physical risk or transition risk that comes from climate, so 
the impact that you know more adverse weather shocks are going to have on on physical infrastructure or that certain business models are going to be able to transition better than others because of likely regulatory change in terms of carbon prices and others um i think that is going to start getting reflected in terms of that risk prudential and effectively then that will drive um some banking change over the over the coming years the piece that you're talking about though which i think is really interesting is is beyond that which is okay fine so that's kind of the risk aspect but how do we really catalyze this this increasing flow of capital well i think interestingly this may actually be happening more on the investor side at this stage and i think you are now starting to see a lot more momentum and focus around whether you call it impact financing or sustainable financing or esg financing with capital flows kind of moving this way and i think that's where we see a real opportunity for standard chartered where to link if you like the capital flows from the big centers um to the ground to the where the change can really happen where the opportunity is um for us as well so i i think from a regulatory perspective we're going to see that continued focus on risk i think from the investor side that bigger focus around impact is is going to 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 happen to put that in context we've got quite a lot of work to do um we put out a piece of research towards the end of last year called um the 50 trillion dollar question where we went and asked investors who have 50 trillion dollars of assets under management how aligned they were to the sustainable development goals um and actually i mean somewhat disappointingly 20% didn't have any knowledge of the sdgs and only 13% were aligned to the sustainable development goals and of all that 50 trillion you know less than 22% was uh, focused on asia and i think the sort of broader emerging markets was sort of single digits so we've got a lot of work to kind of move the big pools of capital to these areas um and i think that's hopefully where we see momentum building but but more work to do do you publish um you know what your esg commitments or other a checklist you know that that um um an issuance client for example who wants to work with you um uh, you know what what should they be uh adhering to before they would qualify for one of your green bond bonds or whatever you want to tag them with uh do you have a checklist that you give your clients Yeah no very much and I think that's on on many different levels so first of all we have uh, if you like our our own aspirations our own sustainability aspirations that are up on our website in terms of what we as an institution are doing um both in terms of our financing but also our own operations being net zero by 2030 um the fact that we're reducing our own sort of emissions and um also working with our clients to reduce theirs then we have effectively the framework of what we define as sustainable finance that is again up on our website and it links our activity directly to an SDG and kind of the impact that we kind of expect to see on it and then beneath that i think we're working with clients all the time to effectively define uh, to show them effectively as you say a checklist of okay so if you want to think about how you uh, can raise sustainable finance here's what you need to do we're going a step further this year which is we're publishing um transition pathways on an industry by industry basis that says look if you're in this industry here are the three or four big levers that you can pull that will move you to a low carbon uh, business model and this is how we can help finance you in that journey and how much of that is being communicated internally in the organization uh you know right from the origination of lending to issuance your employees your staff right so when you say transi- transitioning pathways uh you know how much of that is now embedded in your own evaluation processes the, the, what you do within the organization 
Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question and certainly a big area of focus for us. I mean, I think my aspiration, if you like, is that in a few years' time, Stanchart doesn't need a sustainable finance team because it's just so embedded into everything that we do that I sort of do myself and my team out of a job. And I think that there's a key couple of things that you really touched on there. One is putting it in the KPI. So sustainability is in everyone's KPI at Standard Chartered already. And then the second thing is education, and that's really key. So we run, we're running and developing a global curriculum for all bank staff, not just the sort of frontline people that deal with clients, but the whole bank in terms of sustainability and sustainable finance. And then effectively are building several layers into that so that you can become qualified within the bank at kind of a sort of um, practitioner level and kind of an expert level. On top of that, we run a um, champions program where effectively uh, anyone can volunteer, be part of the um, work that we're doing in sustainable finance. Um, and we've got, I think, 8,000 staff signed up. So it's, it's, a, it's a big area of focus in the bank. And I think one where staff actually are really engaging very positively in it. Last year was a very busy year, right? I mean, not just for Stanchart, just globally uh, in impact and ESG. Tell me a little bit about that $1 billion commitment that you announced last year. Uh, and uh, how busy has it been? I wanted to test with you is this, how much of last year was relabeling and how much of the last year was real? I think, so COVID is, you know, there's the joke that goes around about COVID, you know, what, what, who's done more to digitize your industry? And, you know, it, it was COVID. I, I think in some ways, COVID was also a massive accelerant for the other big trend that I think is, you know, everyone's talking about at a board level, at a personal level, which is sustainability. So there was definitely a significant shift up um, and I give you a couple of stand chart specific anecdotes to go with the sort of record numbers you've seen in the market. The single biggest inflow that we had um, into our sustainable deposit program was at the height of the COVID pandemic in Asia. The number one uh, fund, um, uh, sort of the halfway point on our um, high net worth, our private banking platform was an SDG fund. Um, so we saw a significant inflow into our products, a, a significant uptick in terms of the percentage of financing of projects that we're doing from everything from renewables to, to anything else. So we had an incredibly busy year. I think really encouragingly, 2021 has started, if anything, even faster. Um, and I think we've, we've had some fantastic tailwinds in terms of, for example, China's net zero commitment towards the end of 2020, um, and now the US rejoining Paris. So this is clearly a mega trend. It's not, I think there's been some commentary in the markets about whether it's a bubble or not. I think we're literally just at the beginning of this. It's very much going mainstream. Um, you very kindly mentioned, I think, the proudest moment I've had in banking, actually, which was Stanchart's commitment um, to fund $1 billion on a non-profit basis uh, for our clients that are actively involved in the fight against COVID. Uh, and we have some really impactful, fantastic stories. I mean, we've done everything from um, finance, uh, PPE production out of China to uh, medical provisions, uh, so medicine provision manufacturing in Bangladesh. Uh, to helping companies shift production. We helped a steel manufacturer shift and to make oxygen tanks. It's been a really important contribution, I think, to what has been a crisis for, for all of us over the last 12 months. But it was not charity, wasn't it? It was still a business. Run by me the, the risk elements of, of running a program like that. A billion dollars, commitment worldwide. Uh, and then who comes to talk to you? Uh, you know, and, and what are the conversations like and, and what you need to look out for in terms of risk as a result? First of all, you're right. It is, uh, it's a non-profit, but it is still a loan. So it's not a grant. So we do need the money to, to effectively come back to us. The margin that we charge on it, though, was a fixed margin across any client anywhere of any kind of risk type. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a really tight, tight margin. So the, um, 
the modeling that we had to do at the very beginning was to work out roughly what a portfolio would probably look like on an industry geographic and credit grade split. And then say, okay, well, this is roughly what the sort of potential risk of this fund will be. But there's actually a couple of other aspects of risk that we were also quite thoughtful on. And, and one of the ones, and I think this is really true of sustainable finance overall, is that if we say it's going into the fight against COVID, it really needs to. Like you've got a kind of effectively a, a risk that you fund something and it goes into something completely different. So we established a whole governance structure um, and a sort of checking process um, where we had developed, if you like, an impact checklist. So say, okay, this industry into this country this has a high impact and you know, clearly um, a country that's had a very heavy hit from, from the pandemic um, or is particularly low income gets a higher weighting. Um, and then we had to build into both the, the sort of uh, audit process and the documentation, a number of checks to make sure the funding was going definitely to that thing and it was a ring fence um, to do so. So that was the second issue. Um, so I think getting that balance between the two was, was really key. Some of the things that you're learning in the process are going to be applicable going forward. You're going to have floodings, you're going to have typhoons, you're going to have, uh, you know, um, islands uh, being flooded out, uh, things like that. Now, the thing is that um, it was also, it is still a moving target, isn't it? Um, you know, you made the commitment last year. Are you still running that program right now? Uh, have you increased the amount that is uh, being committed to this? And, and the fact that the first three months of the year look very different from the next three months, the next three months, right? Uh, you are talking supply chain uh, changes and, and the countries that need the vaccine are very different from the countries that needed the PPEs. So this moving target thing, right? How, how are you dealing with that? And, and uh, is the program still running? Yeah, the program's absolutely still running. Um, and I think to, to your point, it, it, but it has evolved. So I think at the beginning of the crisis, I think one of the things that we were hearing back um, as a big bottleneck was PPE, you just, you've just talked about. It. And there was a big focus around, okay, how do we scale that? Going further into the crisis, then there was um, a, a particular issue around certain medication that, that was potentially sort of alleviating the symptoms or ventilators. So we funded um, quite a large, actually the single biggest chunk of the, the fund so far has gone to the creation of, of ventilators, which are in there. Now we're pivoting very much to how do we scale the, the vaccine? So the, the vaccine's there, how do we finance the supply chain um, particularly into uh, low-income countries where they haven't had the opportunity yet to, or, or the ability even to secure directly from the manufacturer. So we're working very closely with a number of different people across Asia, Africa, and the Middle East in terms of that deployment. So what's coming back to you in terms of uh, a brand, a, a, a customer, core customer pool? Uh, what's, what's staring back at you right now from that program? Um, you know, uh, and the kind of... Uh, engagements that you are creating as a result. What is being created right now, do you feel? As the, as the sustainability head of the organization, what do you sense in terms of what is your organization becoming as a result? What can you honestly say um, it, it has had an impact uh, in the bank? The first thing, to be honest, is that the bank genuinely just wanted to make a difference and felt that this was a crisis. So I, I don't think we went into this with any other aspiration than saying, look, we have to contribute to what is a crisis, global crisis, a crisis particularly for the markets that we operate into. How can we do that? Well, one of the things that we can do clearly is just by financing uh, the stuff that need, needs to happen as a reaction. We're very thoughtful about trying to be there for our clients as, as many of our clients also wanted to go through the same thing, but that may have required capital expenditure or, or operational costs that they didn't have at the time. And so this loan kind of provides that bridge for them to then rejig 
their operations to do that. What's coming back? I think what's coming back is an awareness for the change that we can really have and our ability to do that in some extraordinary markets that really need, um, that we're going through some really tough times. So if anything, it just underlies this point that the bank, Standard Charter, can play a really powerful role during these sort of um, crises uh, and changes um, and that we can really support our clients uh, when it really matters. Who are going to be the winners um, when COVID eventually, um, you know, phases out? And, um, you know, in terms of financial institutions, uh, the institutions that are taking advantage of, of what, um, you know, the pandemic is making institutions do, um, how do you think it's going to play out post-pandemic? Um, you know, how much of it is going to be rewarding for Stanchart and how much of it is, um, is business as going back to business as usual? The two big trends that were there before the pandemic hit us, that got massively accelerated through the pandemic, and I can only see accelerating further, are digital and sustainability. The, the companies that are going to do really well, I think, in the next sort of coming horizon are those the ones that have the biggest pivot into those two things, digital and sustainability. And certainly that's something that, that we have absolutely internalized. The third one, as I mentioned, I think in terms of sustainable finance specifically, I think we've seen this big growth and this big focus around the records that have been hit and everything else, which is really positive because we, we do need more capital to move into this space. But really, the next wave, I think, is going to be focused on, OK, how do I ensure that we're having the real impact? Uh, that these bonds are, the debt that's being raised, the equity that's being raised is really having. So I think the next bounce of the ball in sustainable finance is very much going to be about focusing on driving impact to where it really matters. How do you move the needle um, on climate change, for example? Well, over the next decade, the thing that's going to move the needle biggest will be an investment into Asia and pivoting Asia as a whole, its business models, its manufacturing capability, everything else, to a low-carbon uh, future. And I think that's a huge opportunity and it's one that Stanchart is completely um, focused on uh, on trying to help drive. Of the regulators that you speak to, which ones are very helpful? We can see that there's a dynamism both ways. Uh, and are there regulators who are also still sort of trying to sort their way out in trying to understand impact and, and finance? I have to say, I think we're all trying to still figure it out. I think, you know, before I sort of about what the regulators need to do, as an industry, I think we've got to make this easier, right? There is an alphabet soup of different definitions, acronyms, standards flown around around what ESG is. And, and I think actually one of the things that really helps, um, you know, drive a better, more effective market moving capital, as you mentioned, is kind of education and B is standardization. Uh, and then B, three is transparency, right? And I think that's one of the things that we've really very much tried to, to live by example. So that's why we've got you know, our definition of sustainable finance, our, our framework is up on our website. Anyone can use it. Anyone can download it. That's why our impact report goes out every year. Um, and that's why we're very much articulating. So I think the finance industry, frankly, has to get its own house in order. I think you are seeing a number of regulators move. I think, look, the Europeans have sort of set the, the tone in terms of the EU sustainable finance taxonomy. I think that is a really coherent uh, and thoughtful piece of regulation. However, it is not appropriate for non-European markets, where I encourage both the Europeans and other regulators to think about is, okay, well, how do we take that and then put it into an Asian or more broadly an emerging market kind of context so that it is driving capital aligned to those things and recognizing that, say, Bangladesh is not in the same place as Belgium and has slightly different challenges and has a slightly different pathway to being net zero and Paris aligned.
But I think you are seeing regulators um, really stepping up to this challenge as well. I mean, it's interesting that Hong Kong, for example, put out a, uh, I think it was a white paper uh, on sustainable finance in June, right, last year, the height of all these issues. And it shows you that the regulators very much are sort of agreeing with the view that the pandemic has accelerated this forward. And as we think about how we build back better or how we come out of this stronger, we do need more capital to move into these more sustainable areas. And that is a shared challenge, not just for the banking industry, but for the regulators and investors as well. Actually, one of the regulators whose um, who's, you know, position on, on, on impact and environment will have a global impact is the UK regulator, right? So, and now with uh, Brexit uh, and the fact that the EU has done you know, far more deeper and more meaningful work with the taxonomy. Um, is it just a matter of exporting the taxonomy to the UK and then, you know, globalizing it? Yeah, are there differences in understanding some of the goals? And especially because in the EU, there's a lot more government subsidies, um, you know, for for environmental and, and impact. But what do you see are the, are the um, calibration work that needs to be done there? Yeah, I think, and I think this is a really important point because on one hand, to grow a market, to grow an industry for sustainable finance, you know, one of the things that will really help is a standardization of regulation, right? So we don't want multitude of different regulations in this space springing up. But at the same time, the effectively climate is about science. I mean, there is literally a defined pathway from a scientific basis of how much carbon you need to take out of the system uh, in order to be aligned in different countries. And so we need to effectively get that balance right between a consistent global set of standards that everyone can kind of get aligned to that will facilitate the flow and allocation of capital, but at the same time recognizing sort of some of the individual country differences. So I think there are two, two broad groups that are playing a really important role here. One is the Network for Greening the Financial Sector, so the NGFS, which is a collection of central banks um, and has a very wide representation. And, and I think it's um, that is being very uh, thoughtful and is kind of pushing forward on this space. And the other is now the what's emerging, and the UK has just joined it, is the International Platform to Sustainable Finance, which the Europeans have kind of created. Um, and the work stream on, um, on taxonomies is being led jointly by the Europeans and the Chinese. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we're going to see both of these two really starting to try and set some of these global standards um, to really support the growth of this industry more broadly. Uh, COP26, which is going to be hosted in the UK, and I think you're going to see a lot more uh, in the run-up to that, a lot more focus on that. And one of the areas where I think, again, we need to see further development is in creating a credible, deep uh, carbon market. Uh, one, because I think, frankly, we need to see an effective carbon price, um, which needs to be much higher than where it is at the moment. And then a good price signal will then start shifting capital accordingly. Um, and the other thing is that to hit our commitments around reducing net zero, uh, reducing emissions and moving towards net zero. Um, the first priority has to be business model change, has to be actually taking carbon out of the processes. But there are some really hard sectors that we don't yet have the technology to do that with. Um, so if you look at steel manufacturer or even things like cement, we haven't yet got scalable solutions. There's some emerging technology, but they're not fully scalable. So in the short to medium term, we then need to offset that, which is why I think carbon offset markets are really important. And it is why, um, uh, and Bill Winters, our, our CEO, is co-chairing the task force for scaling voluntary carbon markets, uh, which is a big component going into COP uh, for the end of this year. The thing is that, do you think that carbon, the, the, the whole carbon agenda um, was actually originally moving way too slowly? 
Was it uh, the the problem of uh, monetizing that market? Um, you know that would have given it a bigger uh, impetus. What I'm also trying to test with you here is really um, the, the noble goals of becoming more impact oriented and all that, and the business or you know objectives that you can meet. Um, that you will be rewarded as an institution. That there is profit in there. Um, you know, and so um, what do you think could have happened? And this is a personal opinion more than a, you know um, uh, an institutional opinion. Could have happened in the carbon market that could have made it move faster, or do you think that? It's going to move faster now as a result of you know uh, more concerted efforts. Yeah, I think it, it's definitely going to move forward, uh, sort of faster going forward. I mean, you've only got to look at the number of uh, companies and institutions that have made net zero commitments in the last twelve months, um, and I think you're going to see again that accelerate with a change of administration in the US, China's net zero commitment. Um, and then the move towards COP26 at the end of the year. So um, I think we have seen a greater awareness um, and a greater focus from the private sector on the need to move to net zero. And that will drive um, companies and institutions to then start saying, okay, well, if I can't get there in the medium to, to the short term, what steps do I need to take? Well, I need to start thinking about credible offsets. The big issue that we've seen in the offsets market is it's not transparent, it's not deep enough, it tends to be over the counter, so there isn't a kind of a quotable market out there. And that's very much what the Task Force for Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets is looking to do. How do we create a credible, deep market that really can get scaled? And I think there's a big opportunity for Asia here because Asia contains some of the biggest natural carbon sinks, um, both in terms of forests um, and sort of mangroves and, and seagrass. Um, as well as actually being at the center of potentially some of the technological innovation that we're going to see to really drive this. I think you know, China, for example, played a huge role in driving down the cost of solar and hence its ability to get applicable elsewhere. I think we now need to see that same kind of cost curve reduction in technology happen in things like CCUS, hydrogen, and other, other areas. So that, for me, I think is a big opportunity for Asia and one where I think the carbon markets actually can help start driving more capital into these kind of new technologies, for example, to really bring them through that cost curve much quicker than we saw in renewables and solar and wind. In fact, I'm curious about this because, you know, think about this, Bitcoin moved much faster than the carbon market, right? The carbon credit market. And 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 the motivation for Bitcoin was, in fact, really fictional. Uh, you know, the whole um, the whole love of Bitcoin and, and all that. And, and I mean, I'm a big fan of it, but but uh, you know what drove that and what didn't drive the carbon credit market um, makes me curious, like what is required to build a market? I think Bitcoin uses, and I may get this wrong, so I speak under advisement, but I think Bitcoin uses the same amount of power as, as Austria as a country does. Oh, well, so that's I, true I think, too. You know, I, from a sustainability perspective, I'm a big fan of technology and I think there's a lot that can be solved. Uh, well, and how is that? The route out of the crisis, the climate crisis, is going to be through technology ultimately. Um, but we do need to be thoughtful about these new technologies that come on and making sure at the start that they are sustainable. Um, so there's a lot in digital ledger technology. Bitcoin at the moment, I think, may have gone not the most sustainable. No, 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 route, no. But... So, Daniel, the thing that I'm really curious, just based on what you just said, which is, you know, that... Uh, the, that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, absorb so much energy and their energy, um, you know, uh, depreciating, right? And um, and then you have carbon credits, which did not move as fast a market as uh, Bitcoin. At the back of my mind, I'm I'm thinking like, what was it about Bitcoin that 
gave it uh, its community, its investors, its um, you know its uh, derivative market on top of you know the, the the underlining asset and everything, which carbon credit never evolved and took a long time and is still not there. On carbon credits, I think there's a multitude of different issues, but I think in terms of the markets themselves, what I would point out in terms of Bitcoin also shows this, right? The prices don't move gradually; they move over a period of time, and then suddenly you see a discontinuity, a big jump. And I think the same thing is going to happen in sort of sustainable finance around the impact of carbon prices. Carbon prices need to shift for us to be aligned to kind of net zero. And on average, I think if global carbon prices are around, say, $4, they need to be at $75 to $100. When those regulations start coming in that actually change the price of carbon, then I think you're going to see the market not adjust gradually, you will see a significant jump up. And there's already signs that that's, that's going on. And I think I would encourage um, all your readers to watch very carefully how the debates in both the European Union and the US evolve around this carbon adjustment tariff that both administrations are talking about, because that'll be the first time that you see, if you like, the cost of imports or exports um, being driven by the carbon price. I think that's the beginning. I think carbon prices will move upwards. And I think that will then sh uh, lead to a significant shift in capital allocation in the markets. Amazing. Uh, you know, that's a very good perspective. Uh, you know, what you're saying is that if there's volatility, there's a market. What I'm saying is the markets don't tend to move in a very linear, gradual way. They tend to move over a long period of time where you may see ups and downs of volatility, but then a structural shift happens or people recognize that a structural shift is going to happen. Carbon pricing is that structural shift. It is coming. It's just a question of when. And I think you can be sat on one side of the market and positioned for it at some stage, or you can hope you'll catch it at a later date. But what we've seen through sustainability is this is accelerating much quicker than any of us expected. Last question, is going up the league table important to you? I mean, you're not anywhere on the league table at the moment, and, and that's what your competitors or your detractors will say. Uh, what, needs to sh what needs to come out uh, to show that you're a major global player uh, in impact and, and ESG? I think a very fair challenge. I mean, what I would say is I don't think league tables are really reflecting an ability to affect change. I think that's for me, that's the key thing, right? So when we're raising these green bonds and sustainable bonds and everything else, I think they're a really powerful tool, but a tool in order of what? A tool to drive capital to uh, supporting either a, a shift to better low carbon climate friendly business models or to increasing uh, sustainable living standards, achieving the sustainable development goals. So I don't think we're, set, we're not setting a, a sort of a target in terms of lead tables. I think over time, you'll see lead tables themselves adjust to trying you know, to be impact weighted, if you like, in, in some consideration. Um, but I think absolutely what I want to do is make sure that when our clients and customers think about sustainable finance, think about sustainability, we are number one in their perspective. So that for me, that will be the judge uh, for the future of Standard Chartered. And it's something that you know, I think we've got a lot of uh, good momentum, focus and innovation to, to really connect to. Daniel Hammer, we're going to hold you to that, okay? And uh, and we'll probably do another conversation next year and uh, just do an update to see, you know, how, you, how you've been moving along. And by next year, um, the agenda itself would have evolved and we would have a better perspective uh, whether the pandemic-related um, euphoria on impact and ESG uh, will then settle into a more definitive trend that will transform financial services, um, your bank and every bank in the world. So thank you very much for spending that time with me explaining what you're doing. Thank you for 
listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.